0: Okay, welcome back today, continuing discussion of Sutta Nipata. Uh, This is the ninth sutta of the first chapter, Uragavaga, Vaga, the snake chapter, which is just the name of the first of the nine, um, actually 12 suttas in this chapter. This is the ninth sutta, I'll send these links here. That's the overview page. The ninth Sutta, this is the 10th talk, but the ninth because the last time Karaniya Metta where I did two weeks on. Today is Hemavata Sutta. Uh, <clears throat> it's a dialogue between Gautama and a Yaksha, or a Yaka, which is a type of nature spirit. Uh, the short description is the Buddha explains to a Yaka, which is Pali, and Sanskrit is Yaksha, how one crosses over the flood. <clears throat> and <laughs> this is all very interesting. Uh, here's the link to the Sutta Hemavata. Hemavata is the name of one of the two yakas that are having a dialogue and uh, a, a um, uh, encounter or a uh, audience with Gautama. Now, <clears throat> what are yakas? or Yakshas. So let me look into this a little. I found some interesting things. Uh, from Wikipedia, yaksha, which is Sanskrit, Pali is Yaka, a broad class of nature spirits, usually benevolent, sometimes mischievous or capricious, and then later, actually, in time, became seen as malevolent, which is also bizarre. <laughs> Maybe humanity became more malevolent, and the non-physical astral entities that were uh, appearing were more malevolent as well, I don't know, uh, but we're looking at uh, how yakshas or yakas were understood 2,500 years ago, or the basis for the sutta at the time, 2,500 years ago, connected with water, fertility, trees, forests, treasure, and wilderness. They appear in Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist texts. And then later, ancient medieval era temples of Southeast Asia, South Asia as guardian deities. So whenever you see a statuary guardian deity, strange-looking fellow uh, outside a traditional temple, uh, particularly Southeast Asia, like Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, they're commonly considered one type of yakka or yaksha. Female is Yakshi or Yakshini in the same way that uh, Biku becomes Bikuni or Bikuni as a feminized uh, form of the word. Uh, The the text of the Wikipedia goes on, in Hindu, Jain, and Buddhist texts, Yaksha or Yakka has a dual personality. It's not that strict, actually, it's a little bit, because it's really a... It's really a mid or lower astral entity, and then there are many, many classes, and so it's not quite dual, it's actually a very generalized term that applies to many types of entities. On the one hand, Yaksha may be an inoffensive nature fairy associated with woods and mountains, such as a nature spirit, which would, to me, be second density angelic. The second density angelics associated with uh, the four elements—earth, water, fire, air—that uh, also are associated with land and place, like mountains and forests and water. Then, particularly later, there's the darker version in which a kind of ghost of the wilderness that waylays and devours travelers, similar to rakshasas, but so they're they're not rakshasas really, and so meaning that's another class. Hinduism and then Buddhism that um, uh, adopted many Hindu cosmological elements or views or uh, characters uh, has um, uh, an understanding of many types of entities that are non-physical. And these are probably determined by yogis who had clairvoyance as well as those who could consciously go out of body and see them. And work with them. And there's a book from Hilarion called Other Kingdoms, which details in depth uh, some of the astral entities. Uh, when you get <clears throat> to the early view or staying with the early presentation, early Yakshas from the same Wikipedia page, several monumental Yakshas are known from the time of the Mauryan Empire period, dated 3rd century BCE to 1st century BCE. So this is a few centuries after Gautama. Monumental statues, they're large, <coughs> bears inscription related to their identification as yakshas. You see some pictures here. Consider the first known monumental stone sculptures in India. Uh, yakshas, interestingly. Uh, two are from Patna and then from other places. Um, a female yakshi from Beshnagar. Yakshas, originally been tutelary gods of forests and villages, later viewed as steward deities of earth and the wealth buried beneath. Now, there's another page on Yakshas from the Chinese Buddhism encyclopedia. Also, interesting stuff. Uh, yaka, yaksha, a class of non-human beings generally described as Amanusa, a manusa means ah manusa ah means not manusa is basically um with human discriminative or mental function, so it doesn't mean they're mindless it means they're without certain third density human mental characteristics and and so whether they are angelics meaning non free will beings like nature spirits who take care of the land and uh, the kingdoms, mineral, plant, animal, uh, or they are hungry ghost types, um, whatever, Uh, the type of yaksha or type of entity, they don't have the same discriminative power of the 3D human brain. Mentioned with devas, rakshasas, davanas, gandabas, kinaras, Bahoragas or nagas, So these are the different types of classes in Hindu cosmology of mm, earth-related entities. They're not particularly high, um, but they have consciousness and mental function, but it's not quite uh, as full as human. In other lists, so there's much that's been said about them, they range immediately above pretas, or petas, hungry ghosts. Some of the happier petas are called yakas. (laughs) So happy peta, happy hungry ghost. In this case, it's not hungry ghost. It's more like an earthbound spirit or earth-related astral entity. They rank in progressive order. I mean, meaning lots of people have written lots of things about them over the centuries in Hinduism. <clears throat> We're just looking at the older material. Ranking in progressive order between manusa, meaning human, and gandava, <clears throat> which are sometimes called heavenly musicians. And so these are Some of the non-human, non-physical, astral entities of different grades and levels of development. Some being very simple, angelic, what I would say without free will. Second density angelics associated with the elements and portions of land and uh, other kingdoms. Uh, And some of them are higher even than that. Many kinds of kinds... Spirits, ogres, dryads, ghosts, spooks um it was not depreciative the term yaka, meaning they were not looked down on in fact, it's not only is sukka king of the gods also considered a yaka, <laughs> even it's unplaced the Buddha is spoken of as a yaka in a poetic sense, meaning he's a spirit, uh-huh, so you're gonna see that everybody <clears throat> human mind is very creative, and so <laughs> the Um, undisciplined and um, very self-cherishing and morally ambiguous human mind over centuries in multiple cultures or Hindu Hindu India and then Buddhist India and then Mahayanist took it and then Chinese and Tibetan and Japanese Buddhists took it and added all of this and all of that uh to their presentation of these non human entities, so that <laughs> even at one point they would somebody said the Buddha could be called a yaka, so it just shows you that the uh, <laughs> human mind is very unreliable actually, but we're trying to get some understanding, and so okay, some gods are called yakas, but then they're really not because they're they're of a higher level, so we're talking about the 31 planes and the three realms, Triloka, where these are entities generally associated with Kamaloka, but 3D non-3D time space, not what I would call 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th density uh, in accord with the raw material, which is really Rupa-Loka, A-Rupa-Loka. So we're talking about the lowest of the three classifications of the 31 planes or seven dimensions. And those that are you know mid level lower level astral but not hell beings and not evil hungry ghosts or human they're basically part of the uh, <clears throat> uh planetary architecture planetary community uh but they can um seek development, and that's where you get them. Uh, coming to Gautama, seeking uh, instruction. <clears throat> so, Amanusa means non-human, and from another source saying, the word primarily refers to earthbound deities, yakas, demons, or anything, tree deities, and others. Now, I found something very interesting, <clears throat> a long description from, I think, a Sri Lankan, uh, called a critical analysis of Sutta Nepata, The author is N.A. Jaya Vikrama, Vikrama, maybe Sri Lankan, and called, um, one section is called the Yaka Ballads, (laughs) the ballads of Yakras, meaning the songs of Sutta Napata associated with the Yakas. And Hemavata is actually one of two. And there is a prior, not prior, but there is a secondary, Um, sutta, the one that follows Hemavata is called Alvaka, Alavaka sutta, which is a discourse to Alavaka or Alavaka the the yaka, the yaksha. So, this second one which will be next week, uh, yaka, yaksha challenges Gautama the Buddha with riddles and threatens to beat him up. So, you can see they're not all harmonious. (laughs) So, there were therefore two of these yaka ballads uh, or songs it's a kind of um he calls them a riddle poem, a um dialectic or no it's actually, it was a dialogue ballad <laughs> in his analysis of sutta Nipata, the whole of all of the seventy one suttas, so very you know the, if you ever get into Buddhism, you, whoever you are. Um, In a much deeper level, there is a a history of Buddhist scholarship that is really quite lovely. It gets painstakingly detailed, but they're the ones getting into the the history of the different words and multiple manuscripts of the original as basis for translation that um, reveal more than we commonly find in certainly modern versions, which are... (laughs) <laughs> kind of uh, reformulations of old translations <clears throat> from biased or particularly non-practitioner translators. But this uh, page I just sent, archive.org, critical analysis of Sutta Nepata uh, from this fellow, Jaya Vikrama, um, shows you how deep Buddhist scholarship goes. And it's very interesting if you Love the Buddha Dhamma. Um, it shows how deep the analyses and, and scholarship can go and how much more there is than we normally see. So I just want to read a little bit down the page. You probably can't find it unless you get to chapter 53 or section 53 down the page. It He says, Although the three suttas, Hemavata, Alavaka, and Loma, and so we're looking at two of them, Uh, Today, Hemavata. Next time, Alavaka. Uh, Although those three suttas are fundamentally similar in that they are riddle poems resembling the Yaksha Prashnas of the Mahabharata, meaning in the Mahabharata or Mahabharata, there's actually a section called the story of a riddle context between Yudhishthira Yudhishthira and a Yaksha uh, who appeared in the form of a crane. (laughs) <laughs> whose name was Baka. In in Japanese Baka means stupid. But this is also called Dharma Baka Upakyan or Ash Ashak ash, Ashkardama. Anyway <laughs> it's very complicated. So there's this Yaksha Prashna uh or dialogue between the pro, uh, one of the characters, Yudhishthira and a yaksha who appears as a crane, and the crane is called baka, so it's called dharma, baka, upakyan, uh, th- that's very old stuff, right? It's a mahabharata. Um, meanwhile, um, this level, this, this um, particular sutta, uh, hemavata, is from the older strata of sutta nipata, and that's the point this is older stuff in Sutta Napata. And when you read it, when we look into it, as we will, um, it has a certain feeling, uh, or I get a certain feeling uh, of antiquity, of very classical style, uh, literature style. And uh, Jaya Vikrama talks about that, uh, saying, it it resembles this Yaksha Prashna of the Mahabharata. The Hemavata Sutta demands special attention on account of its, its extraordinary length and the difference it bears to the other two in details. So we're going to focus on that after this introduction. Unlike the other two suttas, which are Alavaka and Suchiloma, Alavaka next week, this Hemavaka contains no prose introduction and its principal characters Satagira and Hemavata are represented as friendly beings, whereas the two Yakshas, Alavaka and Suchiloma, like next week, are no more than mere demons. That's why they wanna they threaten to beat up Gautama. All three suttas are dialogue ballads. That's his term, dialogue ballad. But the dialogue consists of only one question and an answer to it in the Suchiloma Sutta, while there are only two characters in Alavaka Here we have two characters, Satagira and Hemavaka, and it's friendly. Uh, And so you can see how some Yakshas are friendly, and some of them are uh, thuggish. The dramatic element is quite pronounced in the Hemavata Sutta, and Alavaka, or Alavaka Sutta, is not devoid of it. So he's talking about the literary characteristics. So going into Hemavata Sutta, uh... Jayavikrama says the Sutta begins as a conversation between Satagira, and that means the dweller on Sata Hill in Majima Desa. Ma, it's a Majima Majima Desha. That's the translation of Satagira. He, uh, Sata he is <laughs> dweller on Sata Hill in Majima Desha, someplace Then and Hemavata which comes from the word, the the translation literally is the Himayan sprite, <laughs> the Vata spirit of Hema. Hema is the same as Himalaya. So the Himayan sprite, meaning the the air spirit of Vata, and you can see that is uh, the word in uh, Sanskrit, Vata associated with air. Hema vata, the Himalayan air, air spirit. <laughs> All right? So th- this is, you know, I mean... <laughs> modern uh, materialists won't will think this is metaphorical but it's absolutely uh, possible that this is quite literal he's an air spirit uh, associated with himalayans when the former uh, satagira succeeds in convincing the latter hemavata of the virtues of the buddha they visit him by magical appearance and hemavata who plays the role of questioner throughout the poem asks the buddha questions The two Yakas are delighted with his answers. They extol him and, along with their followers, seek his refuge. So the Sutta can be divided into three parts. There's a dialogue between these two Yakas, then a dialogue between Hemavata and the Buddha, then a conclusion section, which is an exaltation of the Buddha. And so, uh, let's jump into it. Um, If you look into the further material, the further paragraphs here, going through the three sections, which we might do at the end, Uh, you'll get more detail, um, a more detailed analysis um, from a kind of literary, critical perspective uh, on the sutta. But let's jump into the sutta itself. And so this is the link from dhammatalks.org which uh, seems to be mainly or only Tanisaro's work. So Hemavata, Sutta Nepata chapter 1, Sutta 9 starts with Satagira the Yaksha yaksha talking. He says today is the 15th the Uposatta day which is a day of um, Buddhist focused practice. In community, Today is the 15th, the Upasata day. A divine night is at hand. Let's go see Gotama, the teacher perfectly named. And Hemavata, the Yakka, says, Is his mind well directed? Such toward all beings? Are his resolves mastered regarding what's desirable and not? Satagira replies, His mind is well-directed, and such, toward all beings. And his resolves are mastered regarding what's desirable and not. Hemavata keeps asking, Does he not take what's not given? Is he restrained toward beings? Is he far from complacency? Does he not neglect jhana, meaning the higher meditative absorptions? Satagira replies... He doesn't take what's not given, and he's restrained toward beings. He's far from complacency, and awakened, he does not neglect jhana. Hemavata keeps asking, Does he not tell lies? Do his ways of speaking not cut things off? Does he not speak destructively? Does he not speak idly? This is all associated with right speech. Satagira replies, He doesn't tell lies. His ways of speaking don't cut things off. He doesn't speak destructively. Deliberating, he speaks what's of benefit. Hemavata, who has a lot of questions, asks more. Is he not passionate for sensuality? Is his mind unmuddied? Has he gone beyond delusion? Does he have an eye with regard to phenomena? Satagira replies, he's not passionate for sensuality. His mind is unmuddied. He has gone beyond all delusion. Awakened, he has an eye with regard to phenomena. (laughs) Hemavata keeps asking, is he consummate in clear knowing? Is he pure in his conduct? Are his effluence, this is Ashrava, is effluence ended? Does he have no further becoming? And Satagira replies and concludes, He is both consummate in clear knowing and pure in his conduct. All his effluence are ended. He has no further becoming. Meaning he's finished with reincarnation in the octave. Hemavata then <laughs> uh, puts it together and says, Consummate the mind of the sage in action and in ways of speech You rightly praise him as consummate in clear knowing and conduct. Consummate the mind of the sage in action and in ways of speech. You rightly rejoice in him as consummate in clear knowing and conduct. Consummate the mind of the sage in action and ways of speech. Let's go see Gotama, consummate in clear knowing and conduct. Come, Let's go see Gotama, enlightened, with legs like an antelope, thin, eating little, not greedy, doing jhana in the forest. Having gone to the naga, the lion wandering alone, indifferent to sensuality, let's ask him about release from death's snare. Let's ask Gotama, proclaimer, preacher, attained the far shore of all phenomena, awakened, gone past animosity and fear. Then they fly over to him from the uh, Himalayas, perhaps. And Hemavata addresses Gautama (laughs) with more questions. In what has the world arisen? In what does it, meaning the world, make acquaintance? From clinging to what is the world? In what is the world afflicted? Gautama says, in six has the world arisen, in six does it make acquaintance. From clinging just to six is the world, in six is the world afflicted. Hemavata keeps asking, (laughs) which is that clinging where the world is afflicted? When asked the way leading out, please tell how one is released from suffering and stress. How is one released from suffering and stress? And Gautama gives his main one of one of the two main answers. The five strings of sensuality in the world with the heart described as the sixth being dispassioned for desire there that's how one's released from suffering and stress dukkha. That is the way, leading out of the world, proclaimed to you as it really is. I have proclaimed to you, that's how one is released from suffering and stress. Hemavata asks more questions. Who here crosses over the flood? Who here crosses over the ocean? Unestablished, without support, who doesn't sink into the deep? Gautama replies, which is the the final answer, always consummate in virtue, discerning, well-centered, internally percipient, meaning internally sensitive, mindful, one crosses over the flood hard to cross, abstaining from perceptions of sensuality, overcoming all fetters, having totally ended delight in becoming, one doesn't sink into the deep, and Hemavata makes his final set of statements where he realizes that uh, Gautama is what he says he is and um, has of great appreciation. Hemavata, the Yaka, says, The one deeply discerning, seeing the subtle goal, having nothing, unattached in sensual becoming, see him everywhere released, the great seer going the divine way. Perfectly named, seeing the subtle goal, granting discernment, unattached to sensual nostalgia, see him, all-knowing, wise, the great seer, going the noble way. Truly, it it was well seen today, well dawned, well arisen, that we saw the one self-awakened, crossed over the flood, effluent, free, meaning free of astravas, or all the taints or inner mind flows of seeking and desire. These ten hundred yakas, meaning a thousand, powerful, prestigious, all go to you for refuge. You are our teacher, unexcelled. We will wander from village to village, town to town, paying homage to the one self-awakened and to the Dhamma's true rightness. So... (laughs) At the end, what's happening is they're pledging, he's pledging his uh, yaka consort, or cohort, not consort, but cohort, his community of yakas from the mountains, the uh, vatas, the yakavaka vatas of the air, perhaps, to um, be in followers of Gautama. And um, the best they can do is pay homage to him in town to town. Because they can't teach it to humans, and they probably can't teach it to each other, or who knows, uh, because yaks are all over the board. (laughs) Some are disciplined, and some are wild, and some are positive, and some seem to be negative. And and that's a very interesting perspective, as we started. um, There are certain levels of the astral plane, uh, with certain classes of entities, whose morality is not that clear. They're not positive or negative. They're not black magicians. They're not thought forms. They're not, um, residents of Nosolar, Astral City. They're not hell beings. They're not hungry ghosts, meaning humans that are kind of earthbound and a bit crazed and hungry, or crazed and, and desirous. So they're not in hell. They're not, meaning deep suffering or hate. They're not earthbound, um in in some kind of um, uh, angst of um, uh, disembodiment, <laughs> the, the pretas, petas, you know, hungry ghosts, or people who died that are earthbound, are not very well, generally. They're not that class. They're not thought-form entities. These are beings that can make choice. Um, they're not positively oriented uh, humans in Nosolar or higher, they're not black magicians Um, they are different levels of nature spirit Uh, they they may be humans who died who um, joined certain communities on the astral plane there are different communities on the astral plane doing different things it's a very weird place, the, the astral plane. Really, very weird. And Meaning, um, the history of humanity in the physical realm, from hmm, what 75,000 years ago till today, has correlates on the astral plane. All of it has a correlate. And so you've got some communities on the astral plane of humans that died 50,000 years ago and never reincarnated. And they're still there on some astral plane that looks like how things were 50,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago. Um, and then you've got angelics <laughs> who may work with them somehow. And you've got higher beings that come and go. And um, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on. So uh, they ended up bringing the whole uh, Yaka cohort Along uh, after Gautama answered his questions fully. So, in the first section, um, the dialogue between Satagira and Hemavata, you've got um, Hemavata asking questions, testing um, Gautama's achievement. In the um, in the page uh, from uh, Jaya Vikrama, the critical analysis of Sutta Nepata, uh, he goes into the three parts. And so part one he says, when Satagira invites Hemavata to visit Gautama, Hemavata the latter asks him whether Gautama possesses various qualities, which Satagira in his answers affirms. All the virtues of the Buddha are, which are enumerated in the dialogue may equally well be attributed to any sage. Uh, even the few stanzas which are meant to describe personal characteristics lay emphasis on his ascetic life and not his person. In fact, the whole poem emphasizes the conduct and spiritual attainments of the Buddha, particularly mind. Um, the Buddha at most here or here is seen as a perfect Muni and that's the last Sutta of this chapter actually called Muni Sutta. Muni means sage. And is spoken of in is not spoken of in the grandiloquent terms usually accompany that usually accompany a developed phase of Buddhism. So this is an earlier presentation an earlier sutta from the earlier strata of the Pali Canon. And so he's not called, he's not seen as the world conquering hero, uh, king of the earth kind of thing. He's seen as a perfect ascetic sage. And this is uh, how a perfect ascetic sage was understood to be. Uh, uh, 2,500 years ago, or whenever this was written, uh, taking into account the Historical foundations of uh, Hindu asceticism of the time, and so let's look at um, Hemavata's questions, and Satagira basically affirming that um, we can actually we can actually go to Satagira's answers to Hemavata as um, the aspects of Gautama's achievement in conduct and mind particularly and that's body mind right body mind spirit Uh, body training is of conduct mind training is uh, of freedom from desire freedom from confusion and then the development of all the virtues or powers of mind and that's the spiritualization of mind and that's the self-liberation of mind so mind and body, mind-body-spirit, or body-mind-spirit, begins with shila, goes to samadhi and prajna, the three um, foundations, where shila is, is is morality or ethics, pancha shila, right, uh, the five uh, basic ethical moral rules or requirements or codes. Uh, all of that's associated with conduct, and conduct is basically speech and action. And that comes out of mind. So, uh, by mind is generated conduct or speech and physical behavior. So, thought, word, and deed. So, train, fully trained in thought, word, and deed means fully purified and developed in mind and fu- fully in harmony with that uh, by uh, demonstrated through conduct or body, which is speech and uh, physical behavior so the uh, the several paragraphs or stanzas of hema uh, satagira's reply shows the the mind of gotama the perfect ascetic the mind is well directed and then such toward all beings <laughs> so you see this is <laughs> uh, now now this may well been this is the same notion as Tatagata. The such-come-one, the thus-come-one, that appellation of Gautama Buddha as the such-come-one, the thus-come-one. I mean, it's very subtle philosophically to me. I mean, to me, it's very impressive. They're not talking about, um, he's the lord of the world who conquers all nations, the king of kings and the lord of lords. They're saying, he manifests such toward all beings. (laughs) It's so much more sophisticated than Abrahamic traditions where the, the deity is like some kind of conquering ruler, king, warrior, overlord. <laughs> very, very shallow-minded, those presentations of supreme achievement. The supreme achievement here is includes such toward all beings. Such? Such toward all beings? What are you talking about? And the note two, or... Um, One, such here is word tadin, um, not tathagata, but tadin, an adjective applied to the mind or understood as manifest by the mind of one who's attained the goal, meaning complete perfect enlightenment, the end. It indicates that the mind, quote, is what it is, (laughs) is, and I would say, is as it is the mind mind function mind function (laughs) has returned to its true nature function and nature have been have been are, are fully united function is fully fully manifests the totality of the potential of its nature the the Potential um the full potentials of the true nature of mind are now fully manifest by function, and Ra said something like that too that when Don asked in chapter one or or session one what's your purpose Ra said something you know our nature is one that is our or we we are those of one that is our nature and our purpose and so that's what non duality means is a unification of that which had been previously seen as dual, right? Subjective, objective, inner, outer, self, other, environment, and uh, agent. Those apparent dualities have been unified. Likewise, the apparent dualities of uh, nature and purpose and nature and function. (laughs) And so, um, returning to true nature is the complete... resolution of any apparent uh, disharmony or dissonance or non-perfect alignment um, between nature and function between essence and expression and therefore purpose and nature this is all high philosophy you know and uh, it takes a while to figure these things out it took me decades and there's much further to go but the mind is what it is the mind is as it is the mind manifests its true nature perfectly the potentials the the full gamut of the range of the potentials of the mind are fully expressible or manifesting because there's no there's no gap between self-conception and self. Uh, that talk I gave called Self-Image and Worth, not self-image, Self-Image and Worth. Uh, the imaging of self has ended and the nature of self is fully um, radiantly expressive by, in and of itself. That's such, that's taught in. Or associated with tathagata is what it is, is as it is, and Therav- uh, Tanasaro says indescribable. It's not too indescribable, but not subject to change or alternation. Yeah, beyond change, beyond any, um, be beyond any diminution of full potential, of full potential. Um what it is fully expresses. How it's known, uh, how it is, is fully known. What it is, what I is, is fully known. I fully knows I, uh, with a capital I for Irving. But uh, you see down the line, down the sutta here, there's also discussion of the I, has he become the I, E-Y-E. And so, um, one, <laughs> the, the fully enlightened being, uh, I presume, um, fully returns self imaging uh, to a complete and perfect uh, alignment or non dual um, being where the identity of I. Is um, uh, in accord with its true nature as an eye, EYE. So the eye of capital I for Irving is known as what mind is, which is an all seeing eye, EYE. All seeing, not human Illuminati, silly people. Uh, mind as logoic omniscience as intelligent infinity as um unlimited uh perception or sentient presence unlimited awareness intelligent infinity or unbound awareness the i of i for identity is finally no longer imaged which uh, limits it from knowing or living or expressing its true nature as EYE, the all-seeing eye of uh, logoic, uh unbound awareness. <laughs> the negatives don't know anything like that. They just use the positive terms and then degrade them, as usual. <clears throat> so, his mind is well-directed. Uh, direction of the will, direction of attention. He knows what's important, what's not important, what's to be developed, and what's not to be. And such toward all beings meaning in awareness of un of true nature uh the true nature of beings and of that one you know Gautama itself himself in the state of tadin. And his resolves are mastered regarding what's desirable and not. So again, mind is well directed because his intentions are clear. Mastered also clear. What's desirable and not? And, you know, one can... um, The highest... I mean, this is in some ways the mind of the one who's ready to finish the octave. The mind of the one who has no more interest in becoming and knows that the end of becoming is a supreme joy or the goal and they're just no longer interested in further becoming. we, We have some desire for further becoming. Change mental state. Change mental emotional condition. And that means suffering and that means delusion desire and confusion fine okay we can learn that way too but uh, this is the mind of the one who's ready to finish the octave resolves and intentions are mastered or clear and well uh, arranged well well um, seen regarding what's important and what's not what he what one should desire what shouldn't He doesn't take what's not given, which is the original meaning of non-stealing. He's restrained toward all beings. This is the value of restraint in speech and physical behavior, uh, particularly when the mind has desire, or desire, I mean, I feel angry, I wants to shout, I wants to hit. Well, I will restrain I, the capital I for identity. Uh, from that physical behavior of shouting and hitting. That's restraint. Uh, Because I know it's best. (laughs) And so at a certain point, um, one doesn't need that kind of restraint. It just doesn't arise naturally to do something which needs to be restrained. The need for restraint ends eventually. I'm not at that point. (laughs) I don't think we are. Eventually, there's no need for restraint because one simply doesn't have a thought to do what might need to be restrained. Further, he's far from complacency, <laughs> clearly. He's not hes not sort of dissolute and apathetic. He's quite focused and present on what's important, and awakened doesn't neglect jhana. So even though he's awakened, he doesn't neglect the trances, or he spends... I mean, what happens... What What does an arhat do with the rest of their life? Well... They don 't actually um go on a mission or a crusade. They may teach freely, but it 's not because they feel it must be done. Um, they do what they see as best, and much of the time, at least in the early tradition is spent in jhana in trance. but what are they doing in trance? Well, you can say they're just knocking off, but they're actually they're, there's also white magic going on or world service so yeah, okay. Then we have qualities of right speech. He doesn't tell lies. The ways of speaking don't cut things off is actually not uh, against divisive speech. So he's not uh, turning people against each other. And in a certain way, complaining (laughs) is a form of cutting things off. Um, His ways of speaking not cut things off, not cutting things off. Um, non non-divisive speech unitive speech encouraging good and not encouraging bad and not getting stuck in complaining and not getting stuck in judgmental criticizing um, pissy minded uh, talk of um, (laughs) resentment and I mean it's like if something's bad it's okay to recognize it but don't make a' it's like it's okay to be it's okay to experience distortion it's inevitable, but don't make a home there and um we you know we we all have to keep learning um i think we don't want to make a home in bitterness and aggressive complaining criticizing the world is a totally i mean humanity is very screwed up definitely definitely i mean it's really unpleasant for me increasingly to even read the news like Zero Hedge (laughs) Drudge Report is a real morass of the swamp but the swamp of lies and uh, crude 3D mindedness but uh, I had a thought recently Um, I shouldn't uh, that, that it's unwise to consider what won't be important after death, important now, in the sense that much of what I uh, consider important or put my attention to now will be considered unimportant and irrelevant in the future, after death, on the other side, in the next dimension. And so if it isn't important there, perhaps it isn't important here. Of course some things are, like health of the body, or finance, or home condition, or relationship. ...or living situation, yeah, 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 certain decisions, of course, are important, yep, and they won't be important over there because, or when we're finished, because we won't be here. But there's also much that we're considering here, or pay, our, pay attention to, um, or we consider important, that we will consider completely irrelevant and unimportant over there, or on the other side, or in the next world, because it's not of principle... It's not of essence for the the principle, the the main work and purpose for which we're here, which is learn, grow, and serve. Learning the purpose of incarnation as evolution of mind, body, spirit. Um, Much of what we do, or I do, or some of what we do, or I do, (laughs) is um, uh sort of dallying in the lowlands. Human politics is part of that, I think. And so, that's not about cutting things off, uh, but it's certainly associated with some attachment uh, to what's damaged and dysfunctional and hopelessly tangled. And going back to observe the same mm, bedlam, (laughs) house of bedlam, um... Is unwise, uh, yet it's interesting or uh, entertaining, and uh, grievous and um, sad. <laughs> but um, don't don't get a room in the House of Bedlam, and don't um, get stuck in um, criticizing distortion uh, because it's not. It's it's somebody else's issue, not ours. It's just our issue that we're stuck there. So other forms of wrong speech are destructive speech, like harsh speech, malicious word, and then idly, which is frivolous, or um, talking what's unimportant. And so doesn't speak destructively, doesn't try to hurt, and deliberating or careful in mind, speaking only of what's of benefit. And so speaking only by, by deliberation and careful attention, speaking what's of benefit, not what's of harm, and uh, excessive focus on the distortions and dysfunctions and the vast sinkhole of indifference of earth humanity and the political and the collective is not a benefit. <laughs> uh, prolonged focus on the house of bedlam uh, is not a benefit. And prolonged discussion uh, of the house of Bedlam, <laughs> the human house of Bedlam, is not a benefit either. Uh, what about others? He's not passionate for sensuality. I mean, as Tanasaro wrote in the intro, this is these are the qualities of mind associated with crossing over the flood, or the ocean of birth and death, samsara, or being free from reincarnation in the octave. While it's lovely to be reincarnated in sixth density, actually, uh, this is the teaching for those that are finished, that are seeking to finish um, all suffering, any suffering, any stuckness, and basically fly into the face of the sun. That's all. You fly into the face of the sun and end up on eighth density. Uh, that's what happens to the one that's finished with becoming. And so, <clears throat> not passionate for sensuality means not trying to get more um, uh, pleasure from rubbing the twigs together. And uh, not trying to. Uh, n- not being attached to sensual experience mind is (laughs) unmuddied unmuddied by looking down or the down and out way of lower chakra attachments and external um externally based values right there's inner value outer value outer work outer seeking and inner work outer seeking is passionate for sensuality or body related pleasure and acquisition or (laughs) social position Uh, that leads to muddied mind the muddied mind is the uh the mucky earth water lower elements versus the higher air fire fire air Um, uh, dry the soul grows good the best soul is a dry beam of light said heraclitus so dry the soul grows good the best soul is a dry beam of light Heraclitus. so that's (laughs) that's what happened that that's what the unmuddied mind with with not much interest in sensuality looks like he's gone beyond delusion beyond all delusion beyond uh, ignorance i mean this is the mind of you know the one that's finished with the octave awakened he has an eye e y e with regard to phenomena and that means that that's i mean Sotapanna is often considered gaining the Dhamma eye, I-Y-E, uh, being able to having a first glimpse, experience or seeing contact with what is, with what is such, um, which is contact with intelligent infinity, and a freedom from becoming, not fully free from becoming, but a taste of the deathless, which is a freedom from becoming, uh, beyond the five skandhas. Beyond the three marks, beyond the three poisons, right? The three marks, anicca, Dukkha, the three poisons, grasping, aversion, ignorance. Beyond impermanence, beyond selfless sub- insubstantiality, beyond dukkha stress, beyond aggression and grasping and and uh, dull-mindedness, an uh, an experience of, of of fully opened eye. E y e. Which is the nature of I with the capital I for identity. So, um, rectifying the capital I with the true I, mm. the capital I for identity, the, the conceiving of self, uh, uh, the nature of self, uh, returning that to its true nature, being uh, all-seeing um, sentience, unbound awareness, EYE. That's the I with regard to phenomena. More so, consummate in clear knowing, pure in conduct, and again, that's mind, body, right? So, like, consommé, soup. (laughs) Perfectly clear and uh, uh, hyper-distilled essence of chicken, or beyond that. Uh, Consommé, no, consummate, in clear knowing and pure in conduct, Clear knowing, clear seeing, clairvoyance, right? Clair sentience. Um, Claro, uh, that's uh, a goal, (laughs) a very fine goal. And that's what, you know, that's the basis of wisdom. Uh, Anybody speaking anything and we say, oh, that's wise, or he or she is wise, uh, because that one knows. I've got one who can see. And so, the one who can see um, is the one who expresses the seeing um, in what we call wisdom. And so, clear knowing comes from clear seeing. Clear knowing is the, the conceptual portion, we can say, or what comes from seeing. Uh, knowledge and vision of release, or of what is, or such. And that is the basis of pure conduct. Pure conduct meaning harmlessness, really all the yashravas are gone and no more becoming so no more mental inflow outflow uh mental distorted mental flow as one way of translating ashrava no more and no more becoming and um that's very (laughs) that's the end of the path so then hemavata says okay let's let's go see him i you know you you said that he has all those qualities that uh, I consider essential uh, or are those of the perfect Muni, uh, Shakya Muni, the Muni of the Shakya clan, um, the perfect sage. And so it's this consummation or final achievement in mind, uh, action, and speech right? Thought, word, and deed, or thought, deed, and word. And so by uh, consummation of the work of mind comes perfection in action and speech. And then they rebound on each other and uh, interplay. Consummate and clear knowing and conduct. Consummate the mind. Uh, Clear knowing, clear knowing. (laughs) Consummate, consummate. All right, so let's go see him and, uh, fly over there, and so, uh, they do, and, um, Hamavaka then asks a lot of questions, more, this guy just keeps asking questions, uh, because he's, <laughs> because he's got a busy mind, and, uh, he's a smart guy, and he spends his time in the air above the Himalayas, right, I mean, that's pretty trippy, and, um, that's what, uh, <laughs> spirits, uh, air, vata, vaya, spirits, uh, above the Himalayas do. <laughs> they're, they're, um, being charged chronically all the time. And so the end of the, the guy becomes very metaphysically astute with too many questions and a very busy mind. So he asks, this is, and again, this is where you get to the, the, the Yaksha Prashna from the, uh. Mahabharata, which is uh, the Yaksha ballad questioning type of literature. And so we ask all these questions. And Gautama basically, the first is, you know, how did the world, in what has the world arisen? What does it make its acquaintance with from clinging to what is it here now? And how it, or in what is it afflicted? Um and so how did the world come to be how does the world continue um it's depending on what um and what's the basis of its suffering very similar to the four noble truths actually there's these four questions and the the his style a little bit has some bearing on the four noble truths where the first is the truth um the the nature of of our condition being dukkha its origin being clinging, craving, craving, clinging, attachment, desire, ignorance. Um, The nature of freedom from Dukkha being the goal, being Nirvana, being the end of the path or freedom from becoming, third noble truth. And then the fourth being the way to it which is the eightfold noble path. So the eightfold noble path is the fourth noble truth. So the path is the fourth truth and the eightfold is the way which is Starts with Shila, Shila Samari Prajna. Actually, that's the way to the end, and these four are are sort of um, variations on that theme of the the quadratic initial teaching. Um, how has the world arisen, and what does it depend on? The world is really the world of um, the the six senses, the world, uh, the world. Of body, mind, form, consciousness uh, in the octave. Not external, not internal, but inner, outer. The inner, outer world. The Nama Rupa world. Nama Rupa, name and form. uh, We believe by our Nama, our naming, our thought, that we're perceiving Rupa or an outer world of form. Uh, If this mind that does the Nama that recognizes the outer form and world, calling it rupa, was not subject to avidya, or ignorance, or desire, or clinging, craving, <laughs> and the the uh, samuppada the chains of dependent origination, if this mind that does nama was not <laughs> under avidya ignorance, and continued to be attached to becoming, Uh, We wouldn't be calling the outer rupa. We wouldn't have a division between nama rupa. The experience of the division of subject-object or subject-self that does nama, mental activity, that observes or perceives and conceives an outer form, rupa, world. Uh, the, uh, The mind that makes nama rupa by nama <laughs> and subject-object by nama, uh, under the sway of avidya, and uh, clinging and craving, craving and clinging, tanha and upadana. Uh, it it makes we make nama rupa by avidya tanha and upadana, meaning we make this experience of duality, outer inner, object subject, past present future path and no path, right and wrong up and down all of that, uh, we make the seven dimensions by uh, a vidya based nama, or ignorance that leads to tanha, ubadana craving, clinging, based mind does the nama, the naming the uh, mental samskaric activity of creating the world when that's uh, when the <laughs> the uh, uh, what the engine is uh, disabled, the engine of that nama delusive nama, dualistic nama making, <laughs> dual duality nama, uh, nama itself, right? Self imaging, <laughs> the imaging of creation, the fashioning of experience, the mind that doesn't understand such such is non-duality, which is not unity, it's even beyond unity, because unity is the uh, antidote to duality, and um, eventually one goes beyond both um, the sickness and its antidote. The sickness or the illness is the delusive view of Nama Rupa, inner, outer, subject, object, dualism. The treatment antidote is uh, law of one <laughs> realization of unity or non-duality but real non-duality is beyond unity or it's there's beyond subjectivity actually and so it's beyond world fashioning the world is fashioned by ignorance by the ignorance of uh, the I, E Y E, e-y-e that uh, contracts itself to an I of identity or self imaged or identity imaging as samskara a mentally fashioned identity um, and that gives birth to, that is <laughs> the nature of Nama Rupa or name and form, the mind that makes the world the ignorance and craving, clinging, based mind, world making, world maker and so when, when the mind or I <laughs> E-Y-E stop when when the I, eye e y e is fully opened um, there's no more capital i for identity or self imaging and the world disappears or the seven dimensions are finished in mind or one is aware that the seven dimensions is a dream the octave the octaves are dreams of infinity dreams in the mind of intelligent infinity the octave the octaves are simply dreams of the logos and so creation is a dream merrily 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 life is but a dream life is real it's the fashioning of Namarupa that's a dream <laughs> and so seven dimensions it's all sunya baby it's all empty so anyway <laughs> The arising of the world is um, a product of ignorance. And the arising of octaves, or the sense that octaves are—I mean, Ross said the you know the the concept of light, the illusion of limits, right? The thought of finity, the concept of finity, giving rise to the concept of light, right? Third law, law of free will, law of love, law of light. Third law. Law of light being an illusion. The law, the concept of light, is a little gem in the raw material somewhere, giving rise to the experience of the illusion of limits. And so the yaksha is a smart guy because he's uh, floating above the Himalayas all the time, and um, asks <laughs> this, uh, you know, yaksha ballad-style questioning about essentials, very much associated with the four noble truths, actually. And so, Gautama says it's arisen, the world's arisen by these, the, the four sixes here. The world arises by the six, by the six, this is the five senses and the mind sense. By the six senses, the perception, the doors of perception, the, fi- the six doors of perception, five of body and one of mind. By those the world arises, by those the world... Uh, makes acquaintance, meaning the world is known, um, the world uh, associates with, the the, the quality of experience, relational experience is of the six. Um, the world exists by retaining its attachment to the six, clinging just to six is the world, <laughs> meaning Nama Rupa, and dimensionalities and dualistic subjectivistic experience Um, the octave of the world the world as the octave the octave as world the world being ultimately the so-called outer being inseparable from the so-called inner. The point is that it's an inner outer. Just like Heraclitus would say, the upward downward path is one the path is upward, downward. The world is inner, outer. The dimension octaves are inner, outer. Octaves are non-dual, <laughs> essentially. But it's our distortions and attachments, and you know imperfections of the seven chakra system that leads us to the experience of inner, outer subject-object. That's nama rupa, and this creation of Nama-Rupa, outer, inner, subject, object, um, is all associated with the six sense, six perceptual senses. And so, it's this whole schema uh, of apparently outer depends on the inner and the schema is itself ultimately outer, inner. Not, the, the, the creation is not simply an objective it's an it's a subjectively fashioned apparent objective so what about what is the clinging where the world's afflicted and then how do we get out of this what's the way leading out right so uh i mean basically he's talking about first the the first two noble truths and then the last two noble truths what's the clinging by which it's afflicted and what's the way out and then gautama's grows right into it the five strings of sensuality the heart described as sixth so the five you know touch taste smell sight hearing five heart or mind as six the six perceptual doors or contact points um that's what makes the world that's what makes it's that apparently subjective that makes the apparently objective that makes the experience of duality that is based in illusion and craving clinging and um, when one loses interest in it then one may move towards release being dispassioned for desire there losing passion off passion off-putting dropping passion natural falling away of passion passion for desire there this passion for desire there this is a very <laughs> subtle phrase it's not it's passion for desire that keeps us here in duality and rebirth passion for desire attachment to desire not just desire attachment to desire it's attachment i i i know it's i know it hurts but i like it or i know it's up and down but i want to play anyway you know i know i'm going to get sick but i'll do it anyway Or I know that it's um, pleasurable and there's some pain and I want it. Okay? I mean, that's I think a mature view. I know that I'm signing up for pleasure pain because I want the pleasure of it. I don't want the pain of it, but I know I'll get some pain of it, but I'm not ready to be dispassioned for my desires yet. And that's, you know, (laughs) below the three poisons is attachment to the three poisons. The uh, maintenance of tana, or thirst or craving, or clinging, uh, thirst or craving, T- clinging is upadana, but attachment to the basis of clinging, attachment to tana, um, having a passion for desiring, <laughs> wanting to keep clinging, um, basically not wanting to suffer um, thirst and craving Hunger, hunger, thirst, and craving. Tana, not wanting to suffer it, but to satisfy it by desire or clinging. Wanting to try to, wanting to try to satisfy my basic pain of some kind of sense of insufficiency, inadequacy. Hunger, thirst, craving. Something's wrong here. Something needs to be done. It's just not enough now. That pain, seeking to fulfill it by activity associated with desire, or clinging, or upadana, or that leads to the three poisons, grasping, aversion, ignorance. Wanting that response to craving of clinging or desire or three poisons attached to that response to craving, rather than willingness to suffer the pain of unmet or non-responded Non, non, responded to craving or tanna. That's how people keep passion for desire. <clears throat> and breaking that passion for desire is how one's released from suffering and stress or dukkha. That's the way leading out of the world. Disinterest in craving, <laughs> disinterest in clinging, um, losing interest in meeting craving with clinging, <laughs> meeting tana with upadana. It's very subtle here. So that's the way leading out of the world is um, to uh, have real disinterest and vairagya vairagya dispassion, disdain for? It's really less than that, but it's um, losing interest in clinging. Losing interest in The strategies we've adopted to meeting pain and adopting a, um, a, a more being based response to pain rather than a more doing based response to pain. Meeting, craving, hunger, thirst, painful longing, um by a heartful acceptance and stillness. Sitting through it. I mean, I'm not saying I've achieved all this, but uh, sitting through the pain of Tana, the Dukkha of Tana, rather than meeting it with uh, Upadana clinging and the three poisons grasping aversion, virgin ignorance. That's the way, as far as I can tell, leading out of the world. Sit through it. <laughs> Let it die on the cushion. That's the way leading out of the world, proclaimed to you as it really is. That's how one's released. And then this uh, Himalayan Yaksha, (laughs) who is a really, must be a Gemini, um, asks more. (laughs) This guy's a real trouble. Who crosses over the flood? Who crosses over the ocean? Who doesn't have support but doesn't sink? Right, without the support of clinging and craving, without desire, without attachment to sensuality and the five senses, six sense activity, who can, without all that, who can actually cross the ocean and the flood and not sink? And Gautama basically lays it out, and then uh, that wins over this uh, chatty yaksha, who basically, I mean, a very, <laughs> very this kind of spiritual. Questioner just keeps asking, um, but his questions are super <laughs> elevated, sophisticated, and the way of crossing over without sinking, without support, without sinking, without having external attachments, support of clinging, yet also crossing over, not not drowning, is a uh, by uh, holding to consummate in virtue or shila very tight way of uh, following śīla, Discerning well-centered, internally percipient, and crossing over the flood thereby. Abstaining from perceptions of sensuality is the way of overcoming all fetters. Uh, totally ended delight in becoming. So these are <laughs> what really is normally done in the transit from sixth density to 7. Um Raw saying that they'll lose identity; they'll be free of identity and memory when they go to seven. Um, that is akin, I'd say, to abstaining from perceptions of sensuality. It's basically perceptions of form. It's realizing that thought is thought is rupa too. Um and so the experience of unity, the experience of non-duality, the experience of I is light. Is yet another perception of sensuality. And that finishes the tenth, the last few fetters. I mean, going to seventh is not the same as being an Arahant, but it's pretty close. So, breaking the final three fetters, becoming an Arahant, leaving the octave akin to leaving sixth density to seven, free from memory and identity. Um, The free. ...from even du- non-duality, or, or a uh, reified experience of non-duality, free of reification, free of uh, affirmation and negation, free of samskara, is akin to free from becoming, or totally ended delight in becoming. <laughs> One doesn't sink into the deep. So, uh, I'm really over time today, but that's okay. Um, me and Hemavata uh, excessive mental activity but I hope this was useful it's very very interesting Uh, next time we'll go to the next um, Yaksha ballad and um, I think it's Alavata and see some other guys other Yakshas who are a little bit more rowdy uh, questioning Gautama I hope this was useful Uh, take good care of yourselves see you next time and good night